Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Hope, for reading that to us. What a privilege to be here this morning. This is my 23rd Freshers' Sunday. How about that? I came here without a white beard and a, without a big tummy a long time ago, but I'm thrilled to be sharing with you this morning. My hobby for over 30 years has been wrist watches. When I was training to be a priest over three decades ago, I spent four years and many hours at a watchmaker's bench just studying and appreciating the craftsmanship and the fine skills of making watches. And for several decades, I've read about them, bought books on them, tried to understand movements and makes and so on. Last week on uh, one of the forums that I follow, there was an article called Finding the One. Finding the One. And in it, the question was asked, is there the one, the one wrist watch, the one that you would be prepared to flog all of your other watches, to flog them all, to trade them in for the one, to stop this constant search of reading and studying and desiring and buying and then selling and moving on to another. And someone wrote this, I never thought I'd find the one, but it appears I found the one, the one. This really is the one. A watch. I wonder how long that one will be the one. The idea of finding the one uh, is prevalent in, in uh, articles, magazines, um, in terms of relationships. Finding that one perfect life partner. There's a popular American uh, TV reality show called Are You the One? And they trust computers and algorithms to try and find the one for you. Many people go through numerous successive relationships, always on to another one, seeking the one. My own view is you've got to love the one that you're with and you've got to commit to that one and you've got to be the one for them. But I wonder if this very form quest for the one, whether in relationships or stuff, is really a projection onto these things of a deep and profound longing that we have in our soul, in our hearts, a longing and desiring and a wiring for God. And we're often moving on to the next one, be it a thing or be it a person, because they can never satisfy that longing in our heart that we have for God. The father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, wrote this, man differs from the animals in one very important respect. He has some desires that are infinite, and only the infinite can satisfy them. C.S. Lewis put it a different way in Mere Christianity. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation 
is that I'm made for another world. That I'm made for another one. And today and over the coming weeks, we're going to consider how Jesus revealed himself and demonstrated to us that he is the one. He is the one that our soul desires, that our heart desires. And until he is in our life, nothing and no one will fully satisfy us. Certainly not a silly watch. Firstly then, Jesus is the one for all. The one for all. That phrase, as you'll know, is uh, the well-known motto of the three musketeers. All for one, one for all. It's also the motto, the national motto of uh, Switzerland. And it first occurs in literature with good old Shakespeare. But Jesus is the one for all. Whoever you are, wherever you are, however you are, he is the one that you desire, whether you realize it or not. He is the one that you are wired for. And today, 2.3 billion people have discovered that Jesus is the one and only. Black and white, east and west, old and young, high-born and low, smart and not so smart, he is uniquely the one for all. He's the one for you. The church is the community who are all for one. The one is a title that occurs frequently in the Bible to describe Jesus. It's a kind of title and a name that is given to him. And I think that the one speaks about the particularity of Jesus, the singularity of him, the uniqueness of him, the fact that he is incomparable. He is the one and only. Jesus stands alone. He stands alone amongst people, amongst great leaders, amongst religious leaders. He stands all alone, unique and remarkable. He's not one among many. There is no one else like him, nor could there ever be. I love what old Napoleon Bonaparte said. He said, I search in vain in history to find similar to Jesus Christ or anything which could approach the gospel. No one like him and nothing like the good news that he brings. When Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago, as a human, there was a real expectancy, a real pregnancy, as it were, in Israel, but indeed throughout the world. There were prophecies that were going throughout the world, the sense of someone was going to come, and everything was going to be different because this one was coming into the world. Pagan religions were prophesying it, but particular Judaism. And there were numerous prophecies. And what did they say about this one? They said that the one would be a prophet who would speak the very words of God. He would bring the word of God to us to guide and direct and shape our life. That we wouldn't be wandering aimlessly, 
trying to work out what we should think and how we should be and what we should do that, and what God was like, that the prophet was going to come and tell us. The one would be a priest who would bring sacrifices, who would bring us to God, a mediator bringing us to the Father. That he would be a king who was going to come and establish a rule and a reign that would be beautiful and never-ending. A king, a royal. That he would be a Christ. This is a name. We'll look at it in a few weeks' time. It literally means the one anointed. The one on whom the Spirit of God rests to empower him to do amazing things. To comfort the broken hearted. He loves doing that. To heal the sick. To turn lives around. To set people free. To bind up brokenness. And to bring good news to the poor. That's what he does. And this one would be God's son from all eternity given to us in time. And they would call him in time, Emmanuel, the eternal God with us. And he would be a suffering servant, this one, who would suffer for the sins of the world, who would die for them, who would be rejected, and yet whose body, the prophecies say, would not see decay, and he would rise again. Who does all this sound like? Only one. God calls Jesus the one. On a mountain with a few of his friends, he was glorified, he was transformed. His eternal beauty and glory and majesty was seen. And, uh, and, and the disciples looked at him transfigured in white. And then the heavens opened and a voice came that said, this is my son, my chosen one. This is the one. This Jesus is the one, my one, says the Father. The disciples called Jesus the one. When Andrew met Jesus, he ran to tell his brother, we have found the anointed one. Philip ran to Nathaniel and said, we found the one that Moses spoke of. St. John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And the demons called Jesus the one when he met a person who was infested with shadows and darkness, tormenting them. And Jesus, with a word, dispatched and dispelled this darkness. Before the darkness left, they said, we know who you are, the Holy One. Have you come to destroy us? You're, he really has come to destroy you. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of evil. Jesus himself said, he was the one. When the disciples, they went up to Jerusalem and they were like in awe, oogling the, the temple and these huge uh, bricks and the, the sort of majesty of this temple in Jerusalem. These humble fishermen from up north looking in awe. Jesus said, I tell you, one is here far greater than this temple. What can be greater than the temple of God? Jesus was claiming to be the one. And when he appeared in all his glory before 
John on the Isle of Patmos there, a prisoner in the salt mines because he believed in Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. The one who is and who was and who is to come. He said, I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive and I hold the keys to life and death. He is the one. You need look no further, no farther. He is the one. He's the one for you. And of course, Jesus demonstrated he was the one. Look at his unique birth. Where else do you find the eternal God wed with human flesh, contracted into a womb the size of a span. God with us, God like us, God assuming human flesh. He became like one of us to save us and make us like him. Consider his perfect life. Even his enemies had to trump up charges because they could find nothing wrong with him. Consider his matchless words. Someone had to say the things that are recorded as him saying, and whoever said that knows God and knows all about me. On one occasion, Jesus said to the disciples, are you going to leave me? And Peter said, where are we going to go? Where else is there to go? You, Jesus, have words of eternal life. The Jewish authorities sent guards to arrest Jesus. They came back empty-handed and addled. And the authorities said, well, where is he? We sent you to get him. And they said, no one ever spoke like this one. I want to encourage you, if you've never read the words of Jesus, open the Bible, turn to the Gospels, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and read what he said, and listen to the words of God speaking right into your life. Consider his miracles. Even his enemies said he worked miracles. They just said he worked them by a, a different power. The ancient Romans record that Jesus worked miracles, even though they rejected him. First century Jewish authorities who rejected Jesus acknowledged he worked miracles. They just didn't accept that they were from God. Consider his sacrificial death. One of the most amazing things to me is not the fact of his death and the purpose of his death to bring us to God. One of the amazing things is just a little cameo that the man who killed Jesus, the centurion in charge of the guard who executed him, having fought his... You don't get to be a centurion unless you've just fought for the previous three decades. All throughout Europe and Asia Minor, winning victories for Rome, he put many to death under his sword and spear. And Jesus dies. And what does the centurion say? He says, truly, this one is the Son of God. He knew men. He'd seen men die. He'd never seen a man die like that. And consider his resurrection, overcoming death. His disciples didn't expect a sequel. And he turned up, pushed back the stone, in the, rose up from the tomb, met with them, convinced them, and then ascended into heaven. Jesus is the one and only. And then secondly, Jesus is the one that you want. He's the one that your heart desires. 
The early 20th century Austrian poet, Rainer Rilke, wrote these wonderful words. He said, and they just understand the human condition, that you are left all alone with your body that can't love you and your will that can't save you. But now, like a whispering in dark streets, rumors of God run through your veins. You're all alone. You want to be loved, but you can't love yourself. You want to be saved, but you can't save yourself. And you know that something, every pulse of your heart beat, the blood coursing through your veins is saying, I need God. And in Jesus, God says, I am here for you. That longing for love, that longing for salvation, that longing for God is a longing met in Jesus. In our reading from the Song of Songs, which is an allegory of us and God, that's how the Jewish community understood it. They, say it, they read it every Sabbath as a kind of uh, inviting of Messiah to come. And at the moment, they're still veiled. To, they don't realize he's coming, Jesus, and he's coming back for them. The lover says this, all night on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. There's the human condition. We're just lying on our beds, longing. There must be more than this. Maybe someone watching online this morning was up last night or first thing this morning on their bed saying, there must be more than this. Where, where is the one? What is the one my heart loves? And the lover's there longing for the one their heart loves. And then the next verse says, they resolved, I will arise and seek the one my heart loves. We want to encourage you to seek the one your heart loves. Maybe you're watching today thinking, just stumbled onto this thinking, who's that fat man in a leather waistcoat talking about watches? Well, join us on an Alpha course. We're going to tell you about the one that you don't even know, but your heart loves him. And the lover goes out and says, have you seen the one my heart loves? There is an inquiry, a search. We ask, do you know anything about, how can I find the one that my heart loves? How can I find the fulfillment to my longing and desire? And then it says she finds him. I found the one my heart loves. And I brought him home with me to the room where I was conceived, from my bed to my bed found him at that most intimate place and brought him home. He's there to be found. The one your heart loves and his name is Jesus and he's the one. In C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, Jill meets Jesus who's portrayed as Aslan. It's interesting, Lewis sometimes calls Aslan the glorious one. He's the glorious. And Aslan, Jesus, the glorious one, says, are you not thirsty? And Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. And the lion says, then drink. And Jill says, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? 
And the lion says, I make no promises. And then she says, well, I daren't come and drink. Then you will die of thirst, says the lion. Oh, dear, says Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream to drink from. And the one, the glorious one, the lion, Aslan, Jesus, says, there is no other stream. There isn't another one. I'm the one. This is the one. You found the one. I've been reading a, about a famous Cambridge professor. Some of you would have heard of him. A different generation, Bertrand Russell. Perhaps 20th century's greatest British philosopher and mathematician. Remarkable brain. He won international acclaim. He won a Nobel laureate. He was made an earl in the House of Lords. He made a fortune. He'd been brought up a devout Christian, but in a kind of rigid, inflexible context, and uh, he kicked against it and rejected it, and he became a kind of arch-humanist and became an advocate in the early part of the 20th century for free love and free sexual expression. He had four wives. He had countless affairs, although he didn't like it when his wives had affairs. He didn't practice what he preached. And uh, he spent much of his life, when he's reflecting on Christianity, mocking it, deriding it, scorn for Christians. But despite his fame and his fortune and his philandering, he was a tormented man. He was actually a shriveled up man. And he was overwhelmed by anxiety and nightmares and emptiness. And as an old man, he wrote this poem to his last wife, Edith. He said, through the long years, I have sought peace. I found ecstasy in all his sexual conquests. I found anguish. I found madness. I found loneliness. I found solitary pain that gnaws the heart. But peace I never found. How could he? He'd shut the door and turned his back and walked away from the only one the only one who can satisfy the longing of our heart. And his daughter, Lady Catherine Tate, in her biography, writes, I believe myself that his whole life was a search for God. Somewhere at the back of my father's mind, at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of his soul, there was an empty space that had once been filled by God. And he never found anything else to put in it. Well, maybe you've searched for the one all your life and you've looked into other religions and philosophies and self-help and helping others and acquiring stuff and giving it away and looking into yourself and looking to others. Jesus is the one and only. He's the one for all. He's the one that you want. And lastly, let me conclude and in just a few moments, say this. You're the one that he wants. You're the one that he wants, to quote Greece or something like that. In Matthew 18, 12, these are the words of Jesus describing what he's about in his own words. And he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, will he not leave the 99 in the pasture? 
and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. What a wonderful thing. The whole point, the whole purpose of Jesus' incarnation is to come after you. He is God from all eternity who knows you just a blip in in time and space on this planet. You can see continents from space. You can't see much detail, but he can see you. And he knows all that is in your heart. And he made you for himself. Your heart is restless until it finds him, and his is until he finds you. And Jesus, the one, has come after you because you're the one for him. Don't be like Bertrand Russell and so many others. You think, oh yeah, I know, I understand that, and dismiss it. And turn away and spend your life longing, but never quenching your desire and your thirst. He's the one. Jesus is the one. and He's the one for you, and he's available to you today. Most of you are in this room. You know him anyway. You know all this. I'm just reminding you. You're here because you're all for the one. But maybe there's someone here who doesn't know him. Maybe there are people online watching this now or watching the recording of this. You've never met him. Well, he is there for you, and wherever you are, call upon him. Say, I'm here for you. Come to me, Jesus, the one. Amen. Would you like to stand?